Well, good morning, Fellowship Springdale, and other friends as well. It's good to see you. And I mean, I can really, really see you. Uh, over the last six or so weeks, I have had cataract surgery in both of my eyes, and I now actually, oh, <laughs> I can see you. <laughs> Oh, two new clear lens placed in my eyes. They only have need now for up-close reading. So either you can be fuzzy and the text clear, or you can be clear, well, at any rate. Two new clear lens placed into my eyes. And folks, I'm telling you, it's, I mean, it's almost a miracle. It really is. I have clarity. Now, there's a familiar word. And I now have clarity where before I had blurred vision. Life wasn't so clear for me in those days. And I suppose you could say, with apologies to John Newton, the hymn writer, I once was lost, but now I'm clear, was blurred, but now I see. And I'm happy to be there. Oddly enough, fellowship is also on a journey, a journey to see better. We are, as a church, embracing a year-long focus on seeing Jesus of the Scripture, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. We are on a year-long focus on seeing him more and more clearly. And we call it, of course, clarity. Clarity. And I hope you're participating. And by the way, those clarity books... Uh, our fellowship team, whoever put that together, whoever the writers were, they did a magnificent job. So I hope you're enjoying your clarity book and following along even as I am doing as well. And if you have your clarity book, you realize that we are also spending one year on understanding Jesus better in a liturgical sort of way, a, a, kind, of, uh, a kind of cataract surgery for our church. Uh, here's where we are in the uh, observance of a liturgical church year. Uh, we celebrated Advent, the, the season of Advent. And the key idea in Advent is anticipation, as we were anticipating the birth of Jesus Christ. From there, we went into the season of Epiphany. Epiphany, a, the key word there would be celebration. We are celebrating the life of Christ, particularly for us as a church, through the eyes of Dr. Luke, the gospel writer. Today, we are in Lent, or the Lenten season, a period of time by which we then uh, contemplate. We contemplate the significance of the death of Christ. And often characterized in that time, we have thoughtful fasting and focused prayer. I know that many of you are fasting. You're denying yourself food or other pleasures for 40 days leading up to this reflective time on the death of Christ. And if you are fasting, how are you doing? I've already slipped twice. I gave up this year sweets for Lent, which is somewhat ironic for a diabetic that he would have to give up sweets. <laughs> Next year, I'm giving up boiled cabbage and cooked carrots. For the whole year, I'm giving that up. But nonetheless, many of us are in the spirit of the season in order to contemplate and focus more clearly 
We're giving up something, a, a food or an, another pleasure by which we then replace it with focused attention on Jesus. So as a church body, we, uh, we have been looking carefully at the gospel of Luke, one of the four portraits of the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, and John, of course, being the companions to Dr. Luke. And before today we pick up the story, I thought it might be good for us to back up and get the wide-angle view at the matchless life of Jesus Christ. If you were going to describe the movements of the life of Christ, there would be four key words that you would use. By the way, this is what we use in Panorama Plus 10, the life of Christ. And here are the four words. Jesus' life can be described in these movements. Movement one is obscurity. Uh, he was born in Bethlehem, moved to Egypt, came back, moved up north to a backwater village called Nazareth. That's total obscurity. Uh, he, lived, uh, he, he lived his life like any other young man would live his life. He followed in the profession of his father. He became a craftsman, an artisan. He worked in wood and probably stone. Uh, he was basically just a common, blue-collar, regular kind of guy. But then... Around 30, 32, he began his public ministry, and suddenly there was an upsurge in popularity. Why? Well, primarily because of his healing ministry accompanied alongside his teaching ministry. And no one had ever seen people do the things that Jesus was doing. No one ever heard the words that Jesus was speaking. And so consequently, they were caught up in the freshness of this. And he began, to, he began to attract a large following of thousands upon thousands, including also some religious leaders from down south in the area of Jerusalem. That led to the third movement in his life, and that is opposition. The religious leadership could not accept the things he was teaching or the things that he was doing. And with that opposition, we then move to the fourth movement in the life of Christ, and that's the Passion Week. The last few days leading to his death, burial, eventually his resurrection and ascension. Four movements to capture the life of Christ. What is Passion Week? It is the events of those last few days. Those last few days that will lead us eventually to the hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull, to the place where Jesus died, and to the place where humanity finds life. The place of death becomes the place of life. I love how Peter captures this idea in 1 Peter 2. Hear it from the New Living Translation. Just hear these words. Christ himself bore or Christ himself carried out sin in his body and he carried it to the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Is that not a phenomenal promise? That we who Paul describes as the walking dead, we are dead in our trespass and sin, but through the death of Christ there can come life and that we can find life everlasting through him. That's the backdrop. That's where we're headed. So let's pray and get our hearts ready. Would you join me? Our Father, we ask now that as we attend to the Holy Scripture, that our minds would be alert, that our hearts would be open, and that we would be ready to do anything that you wish in order that we might honor you 
and walk with you more closely, that we might see you with great clarity, for we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen? Amen. The date is March 29, 33 A.D. It's a Sunday, the first day after the Sabbath. Jesus has already mounted a colt. He has ridden toward Jerusalem where a throng of people have cried out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. There are palm leaves. There are voices of Hosanna, which means save now. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, in just a few short days, the voices of the crowd will change from Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king, to crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. So as Jesus crested the Mount of Olives on that Sunday, there it was before him, the capital city of his people, the capital city of the Jews, the impressive temple that was still in the process of being ever more embellished and had been so for decades upon decades, what would have been the eighth wonder of the ancient world, the magnificent Herodian temple. And as Jesus would cross the Mount of Olives, that would be what would assault his eyes. And the text will tell us that Jesus then paused for a moment, looking at the city, looking at the temple. Dr. Luke, the author of the gospel, then relates from his perspective of the life of Christ he relates from that moment three significant events that followed the triumphal entry and eventually will lead Jesus to the temple, the temple, the house of God, the place of high and holy worship, the heart and soul of the nation. That's where he's headed. But I want you to note closely in these three significant events what Jesus does. And these events are recorded by Luke in Luke chapter 19. Just to get a, a picture of it, I've got a chart for you to show you. Of course I've got a chart. Here's a little bit of a chart for you. On Sunday, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. On Monday, Jesus sweeps the temple clean. And on Monday, Jesus speaks to the, pimple, to the people. Now you might say, well, that was a great insight, Robert. Thanks. I particularly like that weeps, sweeps, and speaks. I'm a recovering Baptist. I like to do things like that. But what's the significance of it? Well, let's fill out the chart. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Why? What's the issue? What's the meaning? Because of the spiritual blindness of his people. He has spent three and a half years with them. Three and a half years displaying messianic signs and speaking the truth of God's word and boldly declaring that the kingdom of God has arrived. So repent and get ready for the kingdom which is coming. And yet, with some exceptions, the nation as a whole has turned a deaf ear and a blind eye to his ministry. And so there on that Mount of Olives moment, he weeps over the condition of his people. On Monday, he'll come back 
and he will enter into the temple and he will sweep the temple. Uh, he will cleanse it. He'll drive out the money changers. What's the significance? It's the spiritual dullness of the people. They are just within a few tens of feet from the place where God would meet with his people, where the uh, Yom Kippur celebration would, would, would be held in the Holy of Holies, where the sins of the nation would be atoned for for a year. And there in that high and holy place, there's nothing but commerce. And it's, now, it's loudness. And so he sweeps the temple as he sees the spiritual dullness of the people. They're around it, but they never see. Finally, on that Monday afternoon, he will speak to people. And, and this is the significance of this is he's testing the, the spiritual receptivity of the people. And what the text tells us is very, is very bold. The text says that the leaders heard him, and as a result, they plotted to kill him. And the text also tells us that the common folk also heard him. And as a result, they hung upon his every word. So here are the three events. Let's begin our study with the first event. Jesus weeps. It's Sunday, March 29. Jesus weeps. The text begins in Luke 19:41. As he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem, passing over the Mount of Olives, which would have been on the eastern side of the uh, city, uh, separated from the temple area by the, the, by the uh, Kidron Valley or the uh, ravine Kidron, Jesus, as he approached Jerusalem, saw the city, and the text says he wept over it. Now, you probably know that this, the shortest verse in the entire Bible is found in John chapter 11, verse 25. Can anybody quote, Jesus wept? This is not the same word. He wept over the condition of man separated from God, the death of Lazarus, and so forth. But here, the word is different. It's stronger. It's more powerful. Uh, it, Jesus wept. He, in a sense, burst into tears. He carries the idea that he wailed or, or almost sobbed uncontrollably. Jesus is visibly moved. He is profoundly sad, and he is experiencing a weeping kind of pain. Back up and understand. On Sunday, Jesus approached Jerusalem in the triumphal entry as the king in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. 9. Uh, uh, o, o Israel, or O Jerusalem, behold your king mounted upon a donkey. Jesus has approached as the Messiah King. On Monday, he now is looking at the city as a prophet. And like Jeremiah, the ancient prophet, he is weeping over the city, weeping over the lost and blind nation, weeping over a people who have, have embraced darkness and not light. And so the Messiah King laments. And there's, here's his first lament. It's what could have been. Notice Luke 19, 42. If you, even you. Now, understand in the biblical language, that's very emphatic. The only way I can think of to translate the, the power and the force of that would be like we would do in English. If you, only if you, only you had known this. 
It's a powerful, uh, a powerful emphatic statement. If you only you had only known on this day, day of fulfilled prophecy, what would bring you peace? Do you notice what happens after the word peace? The translators have added a dash. And the reason is Jesus stops his train of thought. He doesn't elaborate. The time of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That time has passed. If, if only, if only, if only, if you, even you, had only known on this significant prophetic day what would bring you ultimate lasting shalom, peace, the kind of peace that God provides for all, a peace that means that everything is as it ought to be. If you would have only known this day what would have brought you the ultimate shalom. And then it's like he almost stops, shrugs his shoulders and says, but now it's hidden from your eyes. It's too late. Darkness has entered the land and the light is virtually extinguished. By the way, do you think that can happen today? Do you think that people can be so close and Jesus so near, but darkness still clouds their eyes and they cannot see? Let's go to the second lament, lament number two. What surely will be. As a result of that, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, encircle you, and hem you in on every side. This was fulfilled in 70 AD with the Roman legions surrounding Jerusalem and destroying the city and knocking down the walls and taking the temple apart block by block. Huge building block by building block. Verse 44, they'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone upon another. Jesus predicted it, 37 years later it happened. Why? Well, Jesus goes on to tell us why. Why? Why is this going to happen? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You just didn't see it. Let's pause for a moment. The time of God's coming? In the plan of God, the forerunner, we call him John the Baptist, in the plan of God, the forerunner would come to prepare the people for the Messiah King who would be coming like a royal personage. And the uh, forerunner would preach the message, get your heart ready to receive the King that is coming. And so consequently, he would preach. And the Holy Spirit, even as John the Baptist was born, the Holy Spirit came upon his father and his father ushered a predictive blessing upon his son. And all the way back in Luke chapter 1, this is what his father prophesied about John, who would be the forerunner to the Messiah uh, when, he would re when he would come. This is what was uh, said. This is from Luke chapter 1. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because, see the words, he has come to, the, to his people. He has redeemed them. Redemption, payment of a price to liberate people. What is the price? The shed blood of Christ. He has raised up a horn. The word horn indicates uh, strength. He has raised up a strong salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, right lineage of the tribe of Judah, the, the kingly tribe. And Jesus said in 
Remember what Jesus said in Luke 19 in his first lament? If you, only you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. It has passed by. It's lost. No wonder Jesus wept over the city, wept over the nation, wept over the spiritual darkness of people who are blinded and refuse to see. The day is now Monday, March 30, 33 AD. Jesus is coming to the temple. Mark, or Luke 19, 45 begins. When Jesus entered the temple courts, that would have been that outer court area, the outer court area where money changers would exchange money. If you were going to buy a sacrifice, the, uh, the uh, temple administration had already determined you had to do it in the proper currency. If you didn't have the proper currency for a small minor fee, we will exchange your currency to our currency, and then you can buy our sacrifices in order for you to fulfill your spiritual duty. And there in the outer courts, Jesus began to see there wasn't a whole lot of worship going on, but there was a whole lot of wealth being made. So he entered the temple courts and he began to drive out, to cleanse, to sweep out those who were selling. He said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer. One of the gospel writers adds, for the nations. My house will be a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then for the second time in his ministry, one in the beginning, another now, at this point, he drove out all of the money changers, overturned the tables, and rid the temple of the defilers. The choice was clear. The temple, it was either going to be a house of money or a house of prayer. It was either going to be ritualism with profit or reality with God's presence. From deep emotion of weeping to deep anger and sweeping, then Jesus begins to speak. Luke continues with the third major event. Every day, Jesus was teaching. Teaching at the temple. But the chief priest, the teachers of the law, the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they couldn't find any way to do it. Why? Because all the people, the common folk, hung on his every word. Jesus taught daily at the temple. His teaching polarized the hearers. Religious leaders heard, angered, plotted murder. The common people heard, astounded, and hung on his every word. And I've noted a bit of that in my almost uh, 40 years of ministry. It seems that when people hear the words of Jesus, there's a spectrum from hatred all the way to apathy and anything in between. And yet what should be is when we hear the words of Jesus, when we are introduced to these timeless words of truth, it ought to draw us into a profound awe of the power of God's truth. It should bring hunger and thirst, increased hunger and thirst for him. When I was a young believer, I used, they always told me this. Sin will keep you from the Bible, 
or the Bible will keep you from sin. There is a fundamental commitment that every man, every woman in Christ must make to this book. And it's our prayer that the Clarity Series, the daily Bible readings, will begin to continue that cleansing effect, that awe-inspiring effect that God's Word has upon God's people. And I see some irony here. To develop a hunger and thirst for Him, how ironic, because in John 5, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. In John 8, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink deeply. Or summarized in the best sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So let's conclude. As we come to the end, let's conclude. Let's make three observations because I don't have takeaways for you and I don't have uh, practical projects. <clears throat> but I do have three observations for us to think about. Observation number one, Jesus weeps. We should also weep. Weep over the world of our relatives and friends and family and co-workers and neighbors who live without Christ. Weep over the fact that the world we live in is in darkness and Jesus himself is the light of the world. We should weep for our country even as our culture and society unravels. We weep for righteousness. Does not the scripture say righteousness exalts a nation? We should weep. So let's take a moment, just a private moment of silence. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and bow your head. Just enter into that place where only you are privileged to be. And for just a couple of moments, I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to give someone, if you, already don't, if you don't already know of that person, give you someone to weep over that they might come to know Jesus. Let's pray. You pray. Someone lost needs to be found. Someone you know, weep over them. Perhaps in the passing of time, your heart has grown cold towards those who are without Christ. Weep for yourself and for them.
Observation number two. Jesus sweeps. We should also cleanse. We should cleanse and sweep out our personal lives. The scripture says our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus went to the physical temple and he saw things that were not right and he cleansed that temple so that it might revert to the purpose for which it was established. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps we need to sweep out and make some changes, do some cleansing within our own temple. For he dwells within us by his Spirit. So what is the condition of your temple? Are there some places that need to be cleansed, washed, or swept swept clean? Remember when King David, after his sin with Bathsheba, prayed his prayer of confession in Psalm 51? He said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let's take a couple of moments and let's pray for ourselves. And if you have the courage, you pray, Holy Spirit, reveal to me a place within in my body's temple, your temple, my body, a place where I need to be swept and cleansed. A couple of moments. Let's pray for ourselves. Would you? We pray. willing to do so, ask the Holy Spirit, make me clean, cleanse me. First John 1, 9 reminds us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you take a moment and confess whatever the Holy Spirit is convicting you of this moment? Observation number three, our last. Jesus speaks. We should listen. Listen to Jesus. When he says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Hear Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. 
hear Jesus speak and tell us that if we truly love him, we will obey him. The words of Jesus. We as believers are so privileged to be given this book. This book which is a divine treasure of of God's knowledge revealed through his prophets, through the writers to us. To ignore this book is to turn a cold shoulder to the God who wants to reveal himself. And there just are times in a Christian's life when we need to make not only a fresh recommitment to the person of Christ, but perhaps to the book that brings liberty and freedom. So let's take a couple of moments. And then between you and the Lord, make your commitment to him of what you are willing to do daily, weekly with his book. Let's pray about our commitment to the scripture. Maybe in light of clarity, our commitment to daily reading of the priceless, eternal word of God. Let's pray. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Hear our prayer, O Lord, for what we have prayed personally, quietly in your presence. Confirm these prayers in our hearts and minds. Give us strength to follow through on that which we have vowed or committed. For the glory of Jesus, we pray it. Amen.